Welcome uh, to you talking with Greg. Uh, I decided that I would give you an overview uh, of the emerging podcast uh, that I'm developing. Uh, it's an exploring visions of knowledge and wisdom in the 21st century. Uh, it's modeled after uh, John Verveke's uh, Voices with Verveke's channel, and it is informed by John's concept uh, of dialogos, uh, which is a rich dialogue that fosters uh, both deep, authentic relationships and the cultivation of insight and wisdom, especially uh, in a dialogical and sort of emergent, distributed cognitive network of understanding. So, uh, the primary guiding frame uh, for this podcast uh, is the search for a coherent naturalistic ontology that can revitalize the human soul and spirit in the 21st century. Um, and the podcast will start with a focus on sort of the emerging space uh, that intersects across a number of different communities that I've been involved in uh, really since 2018. Uh, these are sort of the game B, uh, emerging integral, uh, intellectual, deep, dark web, uh, you know, fostered by things like Rebel Wisdom and the Stoa. Uh, and indeed, my own personal story is getting launched into this space uh, on the heels of sort of the Jordan Peterson cultural phenomena. Uh, and I think that's true for a lot of these different domains. Um, and now I think there's a process by which these domains are uh, getting webbed together. And I like to think that the um, theory of knowledge society uh, is part of that. Uh, you talking with Greg is, of course, a play on words. Uh, and I thought that I would be then take some time in this opening podcast just to give people sort of a lay of the landscape. <laughs> There's a lot of technical sort of jargon I, I introduce. Um, and so I thought I'd map out some of the key terms. So you talk, uh, if we start there, uh, refers to the unified theory of knowledge, U-T-O-K. Uh, and the unified theory of knowledge, unified refers to, uh, is really a reference in historical uh, framing in terms of my own development to what E.O. Wilson called consilience. Um, it's a, consilience is the jumping together of facts uh, and findings to give rise to a coherent or unified picture. Uh, and indeed, unified is another way of thinking about unified is an emphasis on coherence. Uh, coherence is an old philosophical um, uh, approach to knowledge uh, by people like Aristotle and Plato. Many people have been very heavily influenced by coherentism. Uh, coherentism falls out of favor, certainly in the 20th century big time. Um, but I am definitely somebody who wants to revive aspects of uh, a coherentist approach. That certainly is where my heart and mind intuitively are organized. Um, and so I'm definitely a synthetic thinker and thinking about ways to put the big picture uh, together and to achieve uh, greater understanding. And this is central in relationship to uh, where we are at the level of um, what's happening in the culture. Uh, John Verveke talks about the meaning crisis. Um, folks over at Rebel Wisdom, David Fuller, and Ali Beiner talk about sense-making. Uh, sense and meaning-making are absolutely essential. I think there's been a fundamental breakdown uh, in sort of sense and meaning-making, and that is very much uh, what the unified theory of knowledge, the UTALK framework is about. 
What kind of framework is it? Well, you can think about it as a synthetic philosophy writ large, but it's also perhaps more appropriate to think about it as a meta-psychology. The term meta-psychology most obviously dates back to Freud, and you think about psychoanalysis um, as a meta-psychology. A meta-psychology really is the space in between uh, philosophy and the discipline of psychology. It's not under the discipline, uh, but would be meta to it, meaning beyond or above it. Uh, it both reflects on the discipline, it reflects on the subject matter, and it bridges into philosophy. So it is certainly concerned with all the basic philosophical considerations of like metaphysics, ontology, epistemology. Um, it's particularly focused, my meta-psychology is particularly focused on the philosophy of science, uh, and in particular, mind and matter in relation, uh, and uh, how we might develop a coherentist uh, frame of reference on that. Um, what I thought I'd do then is just give you a little bit of background uh, about how this thing evolved, uh, and then bring us to then where we are and why I'm connecting uh, both with these folks in the early part of this podcast, and then we'll see where the podcast evolves. Um, so in my training, uh, when I was uh, an undergrad, uh, I got trained in what I would call standard empirical psychology, uh, mainstream academic empirical psychology. As an undergraduate, I took like 60 credits of psychology. Uh, I was fascinated by the approach. I believe very much in terms of empirical modernist scientists, a scientific approach. I was very impressed by different aspects of the discipline. Uh, standard access, like sort of the social cognitive approach of Albert Bandura, um, uh, what it taught me in terms of how to think critically about the field, uh, how to show me the data, how to challenge sort of folk common sense uh, understandings, uh, and how to do it in a way that you know, would yield um, insights. And I loved all the topic matters of psychology, um, but I certainly was always interested also in talking to folks. I was interested in human suffering, both understanding human suffering, uh, finding ways to alleviate human suffering, uh, connecting with human suffering in relationship to uh, that. So I was both theoretically interested in the deal, empirically interested, and was interested in the practice then of psychotherapy. And so I went on to become clinician, trained as a clinician. Uh, I then got my master's degree at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. Uh, I was there from 1993 to 1996. Um, I got great training there, I'm very happy to say. Uh, during that time, I had uh, an intellectual awakening. I like to say my first intellectual awakening actually is feminism when I sort of woke up to some of my um, you know, masculine biases and realized my household had some significant masculine biases in it and that were sort of baked in systemically to the structure and that there were, feminism allowed me to see a relationship between power and knowledge uh, in sort of a critical vantage point uh, and my own biases in relationship to that and the implications for justice. Um, so in terms of like woke, <laughs> I got woke basically 1989, 1990. Um, and now I'm actually like, what's going on with the waking up uh, and how to wake up healthily? It's one of my really big, and I'm not sure we we're doing that recently, but it's at least getting a lot of attention. It's fascinating. But the more to the point um, is in relationship to, um, in then say 1994, I took a class uh, on uh, the second psychotherapy class I had, and it was a psychotherapy integrationist class. It really highlighted to me that there was a big problem um, or, or an, and an opportunity. There's a lot of really brilliant bona fide approaches to psychotherapy uh, and they afforded us um, lots of key insights. 
I learned that it wasn't really the case that cognitive behavioral were superior. They had just done research in a particular way, marketed their superiority in a particular way. The real science demonstrated actually the best of the best different bona fide approaches all um, got relatively similar outcomes. Uh, the key really was the process by which somebody entered the therapy, connected with the client or patient, uh, cultivated with charisma, a shared understanding, uh, cultivated a very healthy, good relationship, and then developed the, the process by which change would happen and unfold. These are the real principles that Dick, uh, that are associated with, you know, what mean, what is psychological healing or psychological therapy, what generally gives rise to the good outcomes. And then you had all of these different you know, insights. So do you focus on things like emotion? Do you focus on your habits and lifestyle, you know, kind of a behavioral approach? What, how do people get ingrained in particular habits? How do we engineer the environment to restructure the way people act in the world? Um, do we tend to their core emotional system? Uh, do we tend to their attachments in their relational system? Do we do it in their past developmentally? Do we do it interpersonally? Do we look at the structure of their defenses system? Uh, how do they justify? Do we look at take a cognitive view? Should we take a cognitive view that uh, tries to replace maladaptive cognitions? Do we take a third way view that just uh, affords sort of a mindful and cognitive view of acceptance? Um, what about narrative approaches? Then you get into systems view. There are family systems view um, that focus on we're one part of a system that then has boundaries and roles and structures. And of course, then that's embedded in the whole sociocultural system around issues of power. Um, what is the narrative that people bring to bear? So as you get a sense of this, these are all different angles that people have applied to understanding human behavior and mental processes, and in particular in the context of psychotherapy. Um, my coherentist view looked at them all and said, hey, I can listen to them all and hear them saying very good things. And yet um, they, don't, they don't share the same foundational starting points by any stretch. They overlap and they compete in different ways. They give us different language systems. They're not grounded in anything uh, that would then um, allow them to be effectively positioned. I often like to think I saw all these different people playing wonderful um, instruments, as it were, but there was no music uh, that could be discerned in relationship to the different instruments. And we can call this then the problem of psychotherapy. In fact, uh, there's an entire movement, and I'm actually president-elect of the Society uh, for the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration that gets started in the mid 19 80s, and that's a professional society of scholars and practitioners, researchers and psychotherapy that try to get together and ask the question of, hey, can we explore the integration across the paradigms? What is the relationship between the paradigms? What, are the, what do we know about psychotherapy? What do we know about research and practice? How do we integrate and, or really explore ways we might? Um, and that's a long and ongoing uh, uh, you know, society that I'm happy to be a part of. However, basically what I took a very uh, sort of unusual route, there's a, you know, depending on how you define it, either no one else took this or at least very few people. Um, so I had this idea basically that the, or the intuition and it became a, you know, history is a funny thing when you go back and re-narrate, you know, one's life and everything looks different somewhat through the lens of now that you know in hindsight. But there definitely was a sense that I was seeking and the idea that we should organize the paradigms by the science of human psychology. That is, um, and then so I went back to the science of human psychology and, um, you know, what I would then in retrospect then say is I sort of like, oh my God, I didn't realize that the science of human psychology is uh, completely incoherent. 
this is the problem of psychology. Uh, at the time, I didn't necessarily quite have that frame as of yet, really. Uh, what I actually did is I found evolutionary psychology, uh, and evolutionary psychology started to ground me in a big picture view that would afford me the capacity to organize the paradigms, at least so I thought from 1995 to 1996. Uh, and the reason was, of course, everybody basically is contextualized, at least broadly, in an evolutionary view. Um, so, in other words, Carl Rogers and the humanist approach, Skinner and the behavioral approach, uh, uh, Freud and the psychodynamic approach, Beck and the cognitive, they're all evolutionists, uh, at least in the broad sense of the term. And therefore, if we had a grounded evolutionary psychology, then that might be the kind of thing that could orchestrate uh, and integrate. And indeed, I thought the way that... Um, at least as of 1994 to five, I thought that the way folks in evolutionary psychology, that's Lita Cosmides, John Tooby, um, Steve Pinker, how they had organized it was great. Um, but then I stumbled on a couple of things. Uh, and in fact, uh, from 1996, um, I stumbled on, in the end of 1996, I stumbled on a new idea, which would change my relationship to evolutionary psychology probably profoundly. Uh, this was the idea that would become justification systems theory um, and it's the fundamental idea about how the evolution of our hominid primate ancestors uh, and how we synced up intersubjectively without language and then coordinated ourselves, then created broken uh, symbolic language and then shifted when the emergence of linguistic propositions, uh, which would then um, cr and create a meaning highway, an in explicit intersubjective meaning highway mediated by language between minds, basically. And the short version of this basically is, is it's the fact that all of a sudden you can make propositions and then question those propositions to create a question answer dynamic. And then you have to develop shared reasons for what things are and what one ought to do, the is ought kind of domains of reason. Um, and then how do you navigate that? And then what did that mean in terms of what evolved in terms of what I would call the mind's big bang? So the explosion over the last 50,000 years, uh, whereby humans transformed their lifestyles in ways that are certainly different, but not dramatically different from other great apes, for example, into lifestyles of modern day humans that are just unbelievably different. Um, and essentially the, there's two huge streams of evolution that give rise to the difference. One's essentially a cognitive collective stream, and that's what I'm focused on here, uh, with the emergence of language into what are called systems of justification. Uh, there's also a technological evolutionary dimension, which I do not attend to uh, nearly as strongly, although it's definitely related. So, and then you see this in terms of what happens to human civilization and its growth that makes human primates persons, which are so radically different than the rest of the primate kingdom. And by person, I mean an explicit self-conscious system that can justify and take itself accountable. And this is what we socialize our children to do. You actually have to learn to become a person. Um, but anyway, the justification systems gave rise to a map uh, that then ultimately became the tree of knowledge system. Uh, and this brings us into sort of the really first phase of my break uh, with traditional psychology, because uh, the tree of knowledge, the justification system created a joint point, um, what would become a joint point, but really it was cleaving uh, the distinction between the culture person dimension of existence versus the animal mental dimension. And actually it turns out this is an unbelievably important 
ontological distinction. I mean, it just refers to different things in the world. Um, the animal mental dimension, how do you relate to animals in general? And what you do is you engage in a beha mental behavioral response, which is they act and you act and you dance with them in particular ways, but it's radically different than the culture person, which you not only do that, but you also talk. <laughs> and talking is a whole nother, really, it's a second mind on top of the first mind. Um, so there are really two ontological dimensions to the mental. Uh, one's animal mental and the other is culture person. That distinction between those two and the clarity with which I was able to understand the structural function distinction of how language systems evolve was a, un, was a radically different uh, deal. And I mentioned evolutionary psychology. Well, evolutionary psychology didn't have um, the, the right framing on this issue. They had no real ontological distinction ultimately between animal mental process and human process. Uh, they certainly would acknowledge that things like culture happened, uh, but ultimately they try to reduce it to pre-existing domain modular systems. Uh, they are, uh, you know, I talked to some of the founders and they weren't super keen and the idea was sort of a, a pretty general cultural interpretive system. Uh, Roy Baumeister wrote our, a book called The Cultural Animal that sort of guesses this correct, but we actually have a mental organ of justification according to justification systems. And actually, although certainly the architecture of human psychology is not a blank slate, the building, the capacity and the process of what would then give rise to the building of systems of justification, they can be filled in by so historical context, you know, and that you just see that. What is the cultural, human cultural differences? No, animals do have culture, but I'm using a capital C cultural uh, articulation here. Um, anyway, justification system theory then split uh, the culture person from the animal momentum. And then in 1997, I had a flash of insight, um, you know, one night just uh, hanging out and boom, the four cones of the tree of knowledge uh, emerge. For those of you that are watching the video here, I'll share the screen real fast um, and just pop up the tree of knowledge uh, in its form. And what you see in the tree of knowledge um, is an unfolding wave of behavior that starts with the Big Bang and then emerges across four different uh, dimensions of complexification, uh, dimensions of behavioral complexity, uh, planes of existence. I call them <clears throat> those um, things that are called matter, life, mind, and culture. And these four dimensions are linked by five joint points, okay? Um, in terms of, well, there's the energy to matter joint point, uh, and then, the, and that's quantum mechanics and general relativity and Big Bang, and then matter to life, and then life to mind, mind to culture, and then ultimately there's a thing called the fifth joint point, um, which I'll get back to in just a second. But uh, the tree of knowledge, or TOK, that's when I say, when I, uh, is then a new map, I call it now a new map of big history. If you're familiar with big history, big history is a, a movement started by Dave Christian um, that by a historian. It's a beautiful interdisciplinary movement. Actually, Bill Gates was very excited about it. It's a, it's a naturalistic scientific approach that tries to give a big picture, big history view, and it maps the development of um, the sort of scientific knowledge of our, the origin and evolution of our universe on the axis of time and complexification, um, just like the tree of knowledge does. However, what it doesn't do is it doesn't specify the different dimensions of complexity and their interrelation. So the tree of knowledge brings a new metaphysics uh, to big history. It brings a new map for thinking about the behavior patterns in nature. And it does something very important. 
uh, in relation uh, to my own uh, concerns as a psychologist, which is it actually sets the stage uh, initially for solving the meta-theoretical problem of psychology. At least that's how I initially framed it. So what the, what the tree of knowledge afforded me to do that wasn't present in the evolutionary psychology folks analysis, nor was it present in big history, nor was it present in any other system, is actually create a schematic, a big picture schematic that could then help me understand the ontology of mental process. What I mean by that is, well, what are mental processes? What do they refer to in the world? And how do we get the proper view on them? Uh, and th what this does is this provides you a mental uh, picture of getting out of the, uh, getting sideways or, or sort of out of the stream of subjectivity and then just looking at the evolution of mental processes over uh, the course of uh, cosmic evolution. And you, and you really can then box it in. We see the emergence of some kind of thinking uh, or cognitive process in plants and cells. They have some kind of cognitive process. We just call that biological cognition, meaning that they process information, they organize, they metabolize and move, but they do not organize, metabolize information in the same way that animals do, especially animals that have complex active bodies brain, and brains that coordinate that complex active body. Aristotle, a long, long time ago, identified the sensory motor functional forms of animals as being radically different. And any three-year-old kid would look at bees as behaving very differently than a flower uh, on which the bee is behaving. Now, the flower behaves and it behaves complicatedly, but it does not behave in the same kind of behavioral way. And I'm gonna then say that the kind of behavior a bee exhibits is mental behavior. So mental now becomes an adjective rather than a noun that describes a particular class of behavior, specifically the animal behaviors as wholes mediated by brains that do all the things that animals do uh, that plants and cells don't do. Like they hunt for certain kinds of things in radically different kinds of ways. Um, they mate, they build territories. Um, we're all familiar with animals as a class of entity that are quite different than plants and cells. That's not a radical um, thing. But what the tree of knowledge says is actually there's a way to carve the joint point uh, between the life organism into the animal mind in a radically different way. Um, and then it also then says, well, once you get animal mental, you can trace mental evolution across the animal kingdom, at least specifically if we're tracing it up to the human, that's a particular line, but it follows layers of mentation through a particular set of sequences, you track animal mental evolution, you can map it, and then you can also get it to the precipice of the human, uh, and then understand the human cultural mind, Big Bang, over the last 50,000 years and appreciate them. Uh, that perspective. So the tree of knowledge gives this map. And my first sort of real um, foray into like sharing this with the academy was to show that the tree of knowledge set the stage for the meta-theoretical unification of psychology. What do I mean by meta-theoretical? Meta means again, uh, beyond. So I take a step back. Remember my problem of psychotherapy, which was I had all of the different paradigms, but if I was going to practice, I needed to way to organize the research with some schematics so that I could organize what the various uh, lines of research were telling me, appreciate the different paradigms and have a coherent schematic. Well, the meta-theoretical organization of psychology is exactly that missing schematic. It sets the stage then uh, to address what no one has ever addressed, which is then 
now in retrospect, then I realized it was the problem of psychology, which is that there is no coherent understanding of the science of psychology uh, from a standard scientific perspective. Uh, what you see in the discipline is of enormous difficulty uh, that basically shortly after it gets underway, that there are very, very different approaches to what the discipline fundamentally is about, um, the different theoretical approaches. So you, you have structuralism, which is about it's the behind the scenes consciousness that you then get at a systematic self-report in humans, by the way, that's the original meaning. You have functionalism, which is how animals and, and uh, uh, humans adjust, which is the functional mental life approach that William James gives. You have a behavioral approach uh, that says we should be very concerned about um, any kind of mental language that doesn't go with what science is, at least that makes a particular claim about what mental are. That's John Watson's behaviorism. And then you also have this Freudian view that actually you have conscious rationalizations in humans, you have subconscious um, desires uh, that then gets you know, repressed or blocked. And we both need a, a, a theory of mind, a theory of psychology uh, that addresses that. And we need practices like psychoanalysis that uh, are health-based practices that unfold. Well, those are just, those are four radically different conceptions. You could add Gestalt uh, theory to this. You can add, you know, ultimately Lev Vygotsky diagnosis this in 1927. Uh, it's called the crisis uh, and it never is resolved. Um, and the reason it's never resolved is because we don't have the tree of knowledge. That's the basic uh, issue. And that is that we do not have a big picture schematic that properly organizes um, uh, the, the variables uh, in relation so that we can actually define those variables and the field of, of interrelation coherently. And that's what the tree of knowledge fundamentally does. Um, and so my first organ, you know, focus was then on developing the argument that the tree of knowledge uh, could provide a meta-theoretical structure. That means it could assimilate and integrate the paradigms in psychology and bring coherence to them from a naturalistic worldview kind of perspective. I built that from 2000, uh, really, yeah, 1999. I really started working on that. I had the insight that I could, that would lead to the first publication, the tree of knowledge system and the theoretical unification of psychology, which is my 2003 sort of first overview of the work. And then really from 2000, that point up until 2011, I was working then on the unified theory of psychology, um, which was really a focus on the meta-theoretical structure of psychology and the introduction of new concepts, most notably the tree of knowledge system and justification systems theory were the two key ideas. I then developed behavioral investment theory to really articulate the joint point between um, life and mind and how it could assimilate on an evolutionary foundation, which is life, um, assimilate findings from neuroscience uh, as where it's a computational predictive processing system uh, that's coordinating the organ, that is the organ of behavior, assimilate cognitive science, which now has really become elaborated with John Verveke's recursive relevance realization, assimilate behavioral science, especially a Skinnerian behavioral selection perspective, um, and how to also then blend the confusing philosophical disputes between mentalists and behaviorists uh, in a sort of evolutionary ontogenetic or developmental biological systems view that would then bridge across these various domains. That's the third key idea. Um, and the fourth key idea that I developed uh, over this period is called uh, 
the influence matrix. The influence matrix is a map of the socio-emotional process that guides uh, human individuals. It would certainly apply to many social primates, but it's honed in on humans uh, in relationship to how they uh, pre-verbally track, perceive, have motive, and have emotional reactions to the self-other world, both in terms of their internal cybernetic mapping, meaning how they regulate feedback loops between the relationship of self and other, and then how they guide their actual interpersonal, um, uh, what John Verveke would then call the participatory versus perspectival dimensions of knowing in the social world. And the influence matrix then maps it and actually gives rise to a relational recursive relevance realization map. So the four ideas uh, that I developed during this time were the tree of knowledge system as the overall justification hypothesis is what I called it, but really for now it's just justification systems theory and the um, behavioral investments uh, theory for the life to mind joint point. And then that would tie them actually together from the relational dimension is the influence matrix. These four ideas afford the architecture is the argument to now, if we have these meta ideas, we can actually now go back to see the key insights of each of the paradigms, where they come from, what they see, what are their proposition, uh, what are the suppositions uh, that they operate from, and then utilize these architecture to assimilate and integrate. Uh, that, my book, A New Unified Theory of Psychology, um, affords the review of how these four ideas achieve that. Um, and create a meta-theoretical synthesis that assimilates and integrates key ideas from the paradigms. That's what I call the horizontal integration. So that would be classically psychodynamic, humanistic, behavioral, cognitive at the individual level. And then vertically from the biological uh, perspectives from below uh, into the classical psychological perspectives now specified with the proper leveling afforded by the tree of knowledge and then contextualized in a social science view from above. So that's the vertical and horizontal uh, meta-theoretical integration that's achieved uh, with a new unified theory of psychology. I shifted then back from 2011 to 2016, I shifted back into um, what was my original concern. Uh, and that was developing a unified approach to psychotherapy. I now had the architecture. Now what I wanted to do is I wanna see, well, if I work with individuals in psychotherapy, what does this afford me? Um, and what it affords me is now a way to reconstruct the key insights uh, and now put them in the same meta language so that they sing together. And so we can analyze what they are seeing without being trapped by the paradigms. Uh, from 1999 to 2003, I'd worked under Beck's uh, uh, lab, I learned a huge amount from that, but I saw very clearly how the cognitive paradigm is enormously limited. It just focuses on, on one cog and a very complicated wheel of causation. And then it either goes general and says basically everything's cognition or it goes very narrow, but then it really can't account for all the other variables with its language system. And yet Beck, as insightful as he was, basically wanted to hold this as the thing you know, and then advocate for this being the thing when it just obviously wasn't. Uh, there's no way that you could justify it being the thing. It was a thing, not the thing. Um, yet that was the frame. And indeed, the vast majority of paradigms essentially operate that way. But I developed this other one, uh, this other meta frame that takes all the all things and then puts them together to a meta picture of the thing. Um, and I use the uh, analysis of, you know, blind men and the elephant in my book opening line to capture that. Well, now I was back and now I wanted to develop 
uh, the unified approach to psychotherapy. And over from 2011 to 2016, I developed four complementary ideas. Didn't have to be forced the way it had evolved. One that focuses on what's called character adaptation and the systems of character adaptation, specifically five systems of uh, layered adaptation. And adaptation basically means how does the behavioral investment system regulate its investments and then adjust based on consequences and situations and then get layered down into patterns. And indeed, the first system is a procedural habit system uh, that evolutionary is almost certainly the oldest system and then creates the base of deployment of our action selection sequences. It's all the stuff you know how to do and all the tendencies you have to behave in particular contexts and rhythmic, automatic, learned ways. And it's grounded in habituation and sensitization and the development of procedural action sequences. Um, and also, we can see this clinically in relationship to lifestyles that people have. So um, then another system then is the emotional system. Uh, this refers to really the field of experience from the inside, as well as the energizing emotions uh, grounded in positive and negative affect systems, and then more complicated emotional systems. Then there's a relationship system that actually is mapped by the, um, the influence matrix. Uh, then finally, if we jump up to the top of the, you have a justification system mapped by justification system theory. And then the relationship between the justifier and the felt experience of being into the body um, creates defensive systems, as they try, as, which really is a filtration and reaction system that tries to maintain psychic integrity. And we can see this in terms of the way which people respond to things like cognitive dissonance. Uh, cognitive dissonance really is an ego defensive response system that tries to maintain the individual in a justified state of being. Well, CAS, Character Adaptation Systems Theory, provides a framework for the uh, systems of adaptation. And then the second uh, insight was the wheel of development, which are the domains around which character, personality, develop um, traits, uh, in particular, the dispositional individual difference traits that's measured by like by big five. The self-concept identity structure, uh, sort of the real structure of the ego and the way it relates to who the person is, how they justify, um, what their identity is, and then how other people see them. Uh, Values and virtues are the domain of positive psychology, character virtues, things along those lines. Abilities, talents like uh, intellectual ability and other talents, musical ability uh, uh, and skills that an individual fills. And then finally, challenges and pathologies. So the wheel of development um, identifies five broad domains uh, of line that each inside of each would have more specific. And you really think about if you you know, Wilbur's integral view, this would be where a lot of lines of development occur underneath uh, these things like moral development, identity, um, you know, dispositional tendency uh, development, talent development, things along those lines. Um, I also worked to really specify what was meant by the concept of well-being and develop what's called the nested model of well-being, which delineates how to talk about and think about human well-being across the biological, psychological uh, and social levels, why we've been confused and why the unified theory affords us a crystal clear definition of what well-being is, the nested model. And then finally, I also developed uh, an integrated approach to psychological mindfulness called COMMO, uh, which stands for metacognitive observer, that's an MO, and the cultivation of an attitude that's curious, open, and wondering um, 
versus closed and rigid, uh, one that is accepting versus resistant, uh, one that's loving, compassionate versus hostile, uh, contemptuous, uh, one that is motivated toward valued states of being in the short and long term, as opposed to helpless uh, or hopeless. And so what this does then is it, it cultivates the ingredients of a, both a healthy ego on the inside, like kind of what an internal sage would be, as well as what would cultivate um, good, healthy, virtuous cycles, socio-emotional cycles in particular in the interpersonal context, as opposed to things that um, drive vicious cycles, vicious destructive conflict cycles in uh, in the relational world. So, uh, and indeed I argue kind of like an internal family systems view that the intrapsychic conflicts uh, that people have really are, you know, different modes of being that have in many ways, different sub-personalities, needs, reactions, and then they conflict in particular ways, very similar to a family uh, on the outside. So that you can pull lots of different perspectives that would afford that. So anyway, those four ideas then make up the unified approach um, and that was in 2016. Uh, and I would go around and talk about, well, it was the UT for the unified theory and the UA for the unified approach. Uh, then I had this really weird idea, 2016, 2017. I was at a conference called Cultivating the Globally Sustainable Self, which is on a transformational education conference about what are the needs um, that the 21st century has. And I had a light bulb that says, oh, this Yatua thing, actually some guy gave a, a talk on what's called Ubuntu, which is an African uh, um, philosophy that Nelson Mandela is like, toward you, so me, essentially it's a feedback of synthesis between relation uh, that cultivates a toward humanity uh, and toward the other back to self um, uh, value system that really embraces human dignity in the relational world. Uh, and that was that Ubuntu caught my, I was, I was talking about Utua and I was like, oh, Ubuntu Utua, <laughs> um, basically uh, that kind of connection. And, and I had the idea of planting uh, Utua seeds uh, and growing Utua trees. Um, and ultimately that is what gave rise uh, to this thing called the garden. Uh, and behind me then you can see the garden, which basically as in the middle it's tree, okay? Um, and on each, what you can see here is there's a UT, uh, if you pull up the garden, we'll send a link to that, but basically there's the UT and that's consists of four ideas. The first branch on this tree is the tree of knowledge system. The second is justification systems that I mentioned. This is this, um, uh, it's a map of the kind of cognitive, neurocognitive architecture, but connects to behavioral investment theory. It's the map of the influence matrix. These four ideas provide the meta-theoretical architecture for the unified theory of psychology. Then there's character adaptation systems theory, the wheel of development, the nested model of well-being, and this is a symbol of an eye looking down above for COMMO. And so together, these are the four ideas that make up, you see there's a UA inscribed in this tree to make up the unified approach. And so what I've done with this is I filled in that original gap between the problem of psychotherapy and the problem of psychology at a meta-theoretical level. And these two ideas uh, yoked back together. And then all of a sudden I had the idea that I wanted to, that I could see an entire education system around this and ultimately cultivate the idea of the garden. Now the garden or the garden philosophy also speaks to, I was called to name my 
uh, work, the tree of knowledge system. Uh, and there's a long some history about that. Uh, I meant it both because there are many ways in which people represent knowledge as trees, and it starts off as a root seeded at Big Bang and then grows out of that. You know, the, the tree of life can represent the particular third, second dimension uh, that comes out of matter, all of the living creatures in the world represented by the tree of life. Uh, then there's actually then a tree of mind and a tree of culture, if you put it that way, tree of animal behavior, tree of human um, knowledge. Uh, and so you have that kind of tree metaphor, but it's also, of course, a reference to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, and I'm convinced, and I was convinced at the time, although my framing has changed, is that we needed to figure out a different way to relate to science and relate science to religion. Um, and there was a way to eat off of the tree of knowledge, of scientific knowledge, and cultivate a sense of good and evil. And indeed, that's actually the whole, in many ways, much of the project, the argument that I, I had an intuition that human psychology, the science of it, could do great things for, suffer, for alleviating suffering. It wasn't because it was all broken up in its various um, different research paradigms. You know, So how do we understand what grit is, for example? Everyone runs out, oh, grit, change your growth mindset, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that might be very valuable. Some of the early research is unbelievably valuable. Some of the replication, much more debatable. But what is grit relative to intelligence? How do we understand it? What if everybody starts using it? What's the social context? Is it too individually focused? What's the larger values that we bring to bear? What happens when people start using it? There's no way to take grit and drop it into the complex world and, and have it just be metabolized effectively because there's no metabolizing architecture. That's what I'm after. I'm after a metabolizing architecture that allows us to see what's redundant, allows us to see how it's dynamically interposed with other kinds of concepts, allows us to see the basic architecture of processing. That's what a meta theory of psychology does. And so then it's also worth noting here that I was... I, you know, what happens in terms of all the people I'm going to end up interviewing for this podcast is that I, you know, I'm not, I get weirder and weirder relative to traditional um, approaches. Uh, and, and what I mean by weirder and weirder, look, look at this thing. I mean, I'm not doing randomized controlled clinical trials anymore. I'm a long way from Kansas. Okay. Uh, and the reason I'm a long way from Kansas is because my intuition about what kind of knowledge structures and adventures we need to be engaged in um, are very different than running, you know, P studies uh, that we were teaching undergraduates. And so uh, I got further and further you know, sort of away. And then ultimately, actually, the, there was a whole process, both in my program in the world in terms of where we are. And that jolted, jolted me in 2018 uh, as I was cultivating this garden frame and really was uh, developing um, another kind of aspect of the garden, uh, which is called the iQuad coin. And ultimately, there are really three parts of the tree of knowledge, the garden and the coin that really create the particular, uh, which I'm gonna call the psychotechnological architecture um, in terms of really to engage what the system is trying to do. Um, but as I was working in relationship to uh, th this and this odd approach that I was taking, um, I then sort of got launched into what I would now consider be essentially the futurist community uh, that reflects all the individuals that I'll be connecting with uh, over the course of this podcast. 
And so, uh, for example, uh, I was deeply impacted by Jordan Peterson. I was then, uh, I consider myself deeply on the left, but I respected him and then got in fights with people who didn't have any respect for him at all and hated him in particular ways that I thought was grossly unfair and immature. And so all of a sudden that creates all sorts of weird tensions. And I think many people uh, find themselves who are in the, say, larger, especially, I mean, rebel wisdom is positioned in relationship to this um, thing uh, in terms of the way in which sort of the left reacts to Jordan Peterson, the way they react back, and then the unbelievable chasm of misunderstanding or radically different positions that opened up. And I was certainly then thrust into that, my experience, my own microcosm of that macrocosm. So, um, I then get hooked up. I get hooked up with Alexander Bard, who will be on. Uh, I get hooked up with David. Uh, I've tracked David Fuller, uh, have some correspondence with him. He'll be on in relationship to this process. Um, I then get bumped into John Verveke. Uh, and John Verveke, John Verveke's vision is unbelievably important to me, um, precisely because John Verveke, what John does with the meaning crisis is the A, he diagnoses the society in a particular kind of way. He creates the philosophical historical structure, which I've been tracking, but he can track with a lot more uh, depth, nuance, and, and sophistication in many ways than I can. Um, but he climbs up the bridge between a modern cognitive science view um, and philosophy and offers an understanding of human cognition through recursive relevance realization um, in a way that then you know, affords us ways of thinking about both philosophy, cognitive science, that's much more enriching of uh, the human soul and spirit. You know, it, it revitalizes an enormous, at least it affords the architecture. Not only that, he climbs up this mountain in almost exactly, uh, I mean, it's completely independent, but what we find is his model of, of philosophy and cognitive science and my model of psychology and psychotherapy radically intersect like locks and keys. Uh, and the dialogos that we've engaged in, uh, both on some of his Voices with Verveke episodes, and he's come to the Theory of Knowledge Society meeting, um, and we have embarked on untangling the world not of consciousness um, to show that an integrated approach to human psychology and psychotherapy radically align with a recursive relevance realization approach that he affords, uh, and, and now gives us an architecture to think about a naturalist approach to consciousness that I think is uh, coherent and boxed in and clear. And now we're also with Christopher Maestro, show, we're in the process of looking at the elusive I, the self. And it's informed by a new academic enterprise of dialogos, watching people talk to each other as they try to empathize with what's going on, openly disagree if need be, but try to generate coherent understanding uh, between you know, various points of view in relation on these complicated issues. Uh, and that dialogos is very much what I hope to bring in relation to this, um, this podcast it is, is, is engaging in individuals and showing, my hope is to show as a coherentist, what I wanna show is there's an enormous, although there's certainly a lot of pluralism and even integrated pluralist, meaning that there's definitely a lot of difference that's very important and necessary and should be celebrated in, in, in appropriate dialectic convention. And at the same time, there's an enormous amount of agreement in relationship to what is both happening, and the kinds of things that are necessary uh, for this stage in cultural evolution uh, to transition into this very, very precarious novel place that we're in. There are definitely some basic understandings that need to be in place if this evolution is gonna take place wisely. Um, and that brings it back sort of the evolution of my own thinking into you talk. 
So what Utah does, okay, so now you have this whole garden philosophy, and it used to be called, and you see it up there, the Garden of Atua. And ultimately what evolves in this last phase is, well, what is this? This unified theory of psychology, unified approach. But actually, as you see, although you have the unified theory over here, you have the unified approach, you have this thing right in the center which is the me flower. And it stands for the metaphysical empirical dialectic or continuum and dialectic. And what it is that I realized that I had done is I had sort of kind of gone back to metaphysics and not pure crazy metaphysics or not crazy, but pure metaphysics that's outside of the empirical realm. But I had landed on the need for a descriptive systematic metaphysical approach, which was completely lacking. And indeed this ultimately gives rise to my framing of uh, sort of the most recent framing that I offer of uh, the work that I'm doing in terms of both its problem and its solution. And the most recent framing of the problem is what I call the enlightenment gap. The Enlightenment gap refers to the fact that coming out of the Enlightenment, what you have is you have basically a Newtonian materialistic ontology, meaning it's matter in motion and science you get on that. You then get a Kantian rationalist view uh, in relationship to sort of which really is basically human epistemological attention to the way the categories of the human mind carve up ontology. And you never get a good synthesis between a matter ontology uh, and a mind ontology, although you get these two tools in particular between Newton's uh, materialism and physics and Kantian epistemology. Uh, Hegel famously tries to synthesize those. But American psychology can be very argued to just basically take a Kantian epistemological view, a Newtonian matter and uh, uh, materialist kind of ontology that's not really specified, especially given all the 20th century developments, and then are handed this uh, scientific approach, epistemological, ontological approach that's actually not coherent. And fundamentally, that failure of coherence really can be identified in two broad domains that are basically obvious when you know how to look for them. One domain is the problem of matter relative to mind. Like what is the ontology of the mental and how do we define matter, mind relative to matter and with any degree of coherence? What you see in that um, is, you know, that's the mind body problem, the problem of subjectivity, hard problem of consciousness, the explanatory gap. You know, you see an enormous amount of dualism even as virtually everybody agrees that some kind of substance monism or at least some sort of continuity of causation from Big Bang to present uh, is sort of required by any scientific ontology. You know, you can't then you don't get dual world uh, philosophically to work, basically. Certainly, I think is that's a strong argument. And yet, how do you put them together? Well, we can't. I mean, that's the mind body problem where we have philosophical incoherence in that regard. I would also argue there's an enormous amount of philosophical incoherence between what is science and the kind of knowledge the science affords us relative to general social knowledge. Um, the argument certainly is a sort of a transcendental reason argument from Kant is that, well, we can achieve true knowledge, transcended true knowledge through the application of reason, uh, individual reasoners. I think the postmodern critique says no way. Hey, there's an imminent critique. There's a power knowledge relation at the social level of the intersection between reasoning and power and culture and all this other stuff uh, basically says, no, you can have contextualized truth claims. We can't have generalized truth claims, especially that then afford authority relative to other types of truth claims that are trying to generate power. So you get power knowledge confusions about what science is. 
And I call this the enlightenment gap, the joint problem of matter mind and modernist and postmodern. And ultimately what the unified theory of knowledge fundamentally does is it provides a way to resolve both of them. It provides a way to dissolve, fill in, uh, transcend the enlightenment gap. It gives us a very clear naturalistic ontology from science of, mapped by the tree of knowledge system. And then it contextualizes that um, then uh, frames what I often call men's knowledge, modern empirical natural science knowledge, okay? And I do that because I wanna put that in a particular context. It's men's with an edge because it also speaks to the modernist failure to appreciate power dynamics. And I, and I wanna take that, box it off, and then say that the 21st century requires a wisdom-oriented philosophy. Uh, so a wisdom-oriented men's knowledge is then because a woman's knowledge orientation, which is much more holistic uh, in its framing. And so ultimately then what you get is you get this unified theory of knowledge, which actually has three components to it. There's the tree of knowledge system, which organizes logos. You get the garden, which gives rise to a full intersubjective holistic philosophy. And then ultimately, I won't get into it here, but there is this thing called the I-quad coin. I'm holding that up if you're just listening to this. Um, the I-quad coin, which actually is a connection of each individual subjectivity um, with them, an intersubjective story about the world that includes is and ought versus also the tree of knowledge, which then affords us a base reality, to use the Daniel Schmachtenberger's term, base objective reality frame uh, for what science, the enduring truths that science afford us. And ultimately then this brings us to what you talk fundamentally is about. I mentioned before that the tree of knowledge speaks to a fifth joint point. Uh, the argument is, is that we are in the 21st century as a function of the technological transformations, and in particular, the way that technological transformations have unfolded at the level of information processing communication networks um, at the digital, are now interfacing and completely creating disruptive fluxes uh, into a whole new uh, potential for a complex adaptive plane of existence, the fifth dimension. The argument is that we're on the portal of that fifth dimension. Uh, and the way we navigate this portal is a very, very important phase transition. As you go through phase transitions, you get massive tensions between hyper chaos, which threaten, and then try to order it in particular ways. If you rigidly order a chaotic system, then you break based on fragility. So you have to navigate the tension between order and chaos and do so with some awareness about where you're headed, but at the same time without necessarily down control. So we need a wise, technological, natural, relational approach uh, that then is grounded in an effective map of where we are so we can guide us uh, to where we're going. And fundamentally then, it is the portaling through the fifth joint point that I believe describes the point that we're at. And we can achieve hopefully a singular portal through, and that's not like a one through, but it's a networked of sort of an ultimate frame. And the unified theory of knowledge is positioned then to afford a knowledge into wisdom, sense and meaning making system. And what I am seeing in relationship to this whole space um, and in, uh, that, that is emerging all of these different communities is exactly this kind of longing, this kind of calling 
uh, if anybody sees, you know, uh, close encounters of the third kind where everybody has the sort of sense that they're seeing uh, was a devil's mountain or whatever. And they have the images and they can't get it out of their head and they get this calling because there's some sort of beam of light from some extraterrestrial that is calling. And well, I, I think that a lot of people are getting the calling that we're in the midst of a very important evolution. And I believe that we can frame that uh, in pretty concrete terms through what's called the fifth joint point, which means that they're part of what's going on at the very least is the emergence of novel information processing communication networks that could potentially give rise what Oliver Reiser called in 1958, he called the world sensorium. And I believe that we're in at least certainly some sort of global sensorium and we're all participating in that. The question is how? Um, and I believe, and the space identifies it, I mentioned it somewhat earlier, but I believe that we need a meta-modern sensibility uh, that would emerge in relation, one that would transcend the postmodern view. I love Lena Rachel Anderson's view on relationship to this, which basically emphasizes that we have an oral indigenous sensibility, we have a traditional formal sensibility, we have a modernist sensibility and a postmodern. All of them have particular value that we can actually learn to include, transcend, and embrace. And if we cultivate that kind of mindset, we will be in a much, much better place to build what she calls bildung, which is sort of the education of character and responsive personal and social responsibility uh, for the right kind of world uh, that we are looking for that would be sustainable, enriching, and fulfilling. Uh, and ultimately, my hope would be that which uh, enhances dignity and well-being with integrity for all, which is a, a sort of an, a, an underlying value guide lodestar frame uh, that I uh, offer. So uh, ultimately, uh, what we have here is the UTOC. Uh, so you talking with Greg, UTOC itself has three projects in it. It's got the unified approach to psychotherapy. I mean, uh, and the unified theory of psychology, that space uh, inside uh, actually also gives rise to this macro meta psychology and unified theory of knowledge uh, that can potentially resolve and transition through the enlightenment gap, afford us a way to make sense of matter and mind and society and science in a particular way and locate us in our cosmic coordinates around the fifth joint point. And so you talking with Greg is about networking with individuals uh, who are in this meta-modern space, cultivating the sensibility uh, to try to inform us uh, sort of the best way forward uh, as our civilization transitions in the 21st century. Thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to connecting with people on this. Uh, I hope this has been helpful uh, and I appreciate uh, your journey along with me uh, on this uh, podcast. Thank you.